Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk Cosmic Queries Editions. One of our favorite. And my guest co-host today is Matt Kirshen. Matt, good to have you back on. It's lovely to be back on in these slightly strange circumstances. I I miss you. I miss you too. I miss miss doing the show. I miss being in New York. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and and remind me, your show is, is almost... Known science? I always forget the title. <laughs> it, it, it almost feels like you're doing this on purpose, Neil. It's, <laughs> it's probably science is the show. Pro- Pro- probably, probably science. science. I had the right Occasionally science. Oh, Sometimes science sneaks in there. Almost known science. Well, it's great, it's, it's great to have you as my comedic co-host. It's lovely to be here. And uh, t- today's topic, we're going to focus on computational biology. In particular, ways in which that matters to genetics. Ooh, that just sounds diabolical. Like you want these people on your side going into the future. <laughs> so uh, I've got Dr. Chris Mason on the line here. Chris, welcome to Star Talk Cosmic Queries. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and you are uh, you are medical. Uh, research professional at Cornell Weill Medical Center uh, down in New York City, correct? That's right. Uh, labs up in Manhattan. Uh, I live in Brooklyn. You know, it's uh, the better borough of, uh, of New York City, <laughs> as some of us say here. But yeah, so uh, in New York City and have a lab at saying genetics, computational biology, and a little bit of space genetics. Yeah, I think most people, well, I certainly was new to the concept of computational biology. I know we have some at the museum, at the American Museum of Natural History. There's a lot of computational biology going on there. But I don't think that's taught when you learn biology in high school. So give me like a one-minute overview on what computational biology means relative to ordinary biology. Yeah, what's interesting about biology is you think of it as cells and organisms you know, wandering around the, the floor, if you see an ant on the floor or a bird in the sky. But more and more, all of biology is becoming what a lot of people say is systems biology, or really most of biology is best understood as a computational problem where you can model what's happening inside the cells. And if you do it well enough, you can actually predict what will happen as you perturb that system. If you add a drug to the system, say, for a cancer treatment, or if you add a gene, if you take a gene from one species and you try to move it to another one, or even if you just you know, stress something, like, say, put it in space or give it a, you know, make it go for a run. And so these are all things that the computational tools let you model what's happening inside the cells and you predict what will happen and then find new drug targets, model drugs, and even just better understand the, the DNA, the genome. So you are the futurists of biology. <laughs> or we're just trying to build, you know, models of inside the biology. And uh, Box once said all models are wrong. Some are just more useful. And this has been especially during the pandemic times, where you know oh, yeah. uh, we're just trying to build models of what's happening. So this this might be an impossible question to answer. But how how accurate are your models now? For like, if you were how accurately can you predict what a particular chemical will do to a particular cell? It's a great question. I think we're not as good as we'd like to be, so I can't say we're 99% accurate that if you tell me a structure of a molecule, I can tell you exactly where it's going to go in the body. There's an entire, actually, there's a field of computational chemistry. There's computational biology, 
there is a lot of a lot of astrophysics, of course, is computational in terms of how you mine the data, what you're scanning for. For a little while, there was a, a in the field, you know, how accurate can bioinformatics be as a, as a discipline? And generally, if you get above 95 percent, which you can do for certain, you know, whether one protein will bind with another protein, or whether one gene is an active gene or whether it's not active, they can do that over 99%. So it depends on the question, but uh, it's getting better every year as we get more data. How bad does it get? <laughs> no, don't tell me your, your hits and leave out the miss and misses. <laughs> <laughs> so I think there, you know, there was this big push about the reproducibility crisis in all of all the sciences for a while, about 10 years ago. And that was because people would try and take the same, say, okay, a drug, I put this in these cells and I can predict that the cells won't grow as fast. So I think this could be a cancer drug, for example. And people tried to reproduce these studies and a lot of them were 50% reproducible or sometimes 20% reproducible were some of these eye-dropping headlines. But that's because biology is complicated. It depends on these cells that have been growing in dishes, in some cases for decades, and they're not even human cells anymore. These are cells that basically have mutated, have instead of 46 chromosomes, they might have 50 or 60 chromosomes. So if aliens came to Earth and said, I want to show, find me human cells, if they looked at these cells in most labs, they wouldn't remotely look like humans. So some of the problem wait, wait. Of, of predictability is in, in the biology. Chris, what you're saying is there's a whole branch of biology that's almost science. <laughs> and then man, <laughs> you should go on, really, it's really go on Matt's it's show. Really, I got you. I got you covered. <laughs> and it's Neil, no more questions to Chris. <laughs> Throw them this way because <laughs> we're outside of science, I'm in. I'm in. Okay, so Chris, since but you're we'll, almost uh, science. <laughs> we're close. We're close. <laughs> as long as it's in the probably territory. Probably science. We're good. Uh, I was very impressed to learn that in your resume included published research on the NASA twin study. These are the twin astronauts. One was sent into space, the other was not. And then you leave the guy in space for a long time and, and then they come back and you compare them. So this presumably was a quite a, a treasure of data for you. It, it was uh, kind of a dream come true in terms of every molecule we could measure in the body, every change to the organ systems, the brain, cognitive states. So it, it was it was great. Also, I'm a geneticist, so I wish everyone had a twin that we could send one to do one thing and one to do the other. Uh, I, you know, I would love their triplets even be great. I'd take quadruplets. Like all I want to do is is you know separate out twins and see what would happen. So uh, it was uh, a really unique opportunity uh, that NASA had selected ten labs to work together. You know, I, it was a really big team effort. I, I was the geneticist in the study, leading a lot of the looking at DNA and the RNA, seeing what's happening as the body adapts to space. But it was a, a real team effort. And we looked at every possible molecule we could. So DNA, RNA, proteins, small molecules, you know, behavioral changes, telomeres we'll probably talk about as well. You know, everything we could yeah. to try and understand how does the body change when you go to space and can we prepare for Mars? Were all of the different experiments like serious science ones, or was like one of them maybe let's put different hats on them and see how they look? <laughs> there were. Um, there's a lot of experiments that are uh, preliminary. You could say not. I mean, not just in our study where you are trying things out for the first time, but even these kind of uh, suction pants that Scott Kelly wore in space for a while, which basically. It puts like a vacuum around his legs to try and pull the blood from his upper body down into his legs just to relieve the pressure on him. So th those are relatively new and they're kind of experimental, but the astronauts really like them because it, it just it can feel better because they feel a little bit like they're back on Earth to, at least for a little so, while. So, so it sort of cheats the effect of gravity. by s Gravity would normally make blood flow more down than up and this right, right. cheats that effect by with a vacuum. Yeah, like pulling it. I mean, we've evolved, you know, for hundreds of millions of years on this planet. You know, billions if you go back to the really early ancestors, and we're used to gravity. So if suddenly it's gone, the body has not had that much time to really get used to it. And so these pants are one way to try and adapt to that. Other other ways was we do pharmacological interventions to try and get get rid of the stress on the body. A lot of the inflammation in the body is something else uh, that we, you know, there's pharmacological interventions for. And then also sleep. It's hard for a lot of the astronauts to sleep, so they take all the time sleeping pills. Yeah, but wait, Chris. If 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 we are perfect at um, compensating for being in space rather than on Earth, then you wouldn't have a job because you're trying to find out what's different. <laughs> we, we'd be done. That's right. We we would just say good luck. You know, it looks like you're all good set. Luck. That's a good, yeah, actually. <laughs> or even the, the the you know the fact that we don't understand biology. I tell this to students and, and medical students sometimes. I say, listen, that's job security. If we don't know everything about biology, then we've got work to do. So it's actually it's great. Uh, and so you mentioned one of them, Scott Kelly, and I think Scott we, he's been on Star Talk. And I asked, 
which of the twins are you? And he said, I'm the good looking one. <laughs> so that's, a, that's how he identifies himself relative to his twin brother. Uh, and the, the did, name did of his he, brother. Was he good looking before he went into space or not? Like, what, what, was, there a cha- uh, was there a noticeable change in attractiveness? On either end of his flight, he did lose weight actually. So he lost about eight percent of his body weight, and he got a little bit taller. Uh, some because of the lack of compression on the spinal column, and because of relativity, he is slightly younger. He was moving closer to the speed of light for a year than his brother on Earth. Well, all of us here on Earth, and so you could say he got taller, younger, uh, and, a, and you know, and a little bit, and thinner. you know, lost some weight. So it's kind of a, a you know, it's kind of the best program ever. Except you have to be in space <laughs> getting irradiated the whole time. That's the only downside. <laughs> <laughs> Ignoring the radiation and all the rest of that. And the stress of it all. <laughs> but he did, was, so that, that gets, one of the things we did see in the study was, uh, this work with Susan Bailey, was, you know, the telomeres got longer and then we looked in her lab and in our lab we validated this and now we're following up with additional studies. But it was really a surprising result because when you get irradiated and you're being blasted and effectively in a stressful and sort of really strenuous environment, we thought, if anything, telomeres would get shorter because they normally get shorter as you age. So we thought we would just accelerate this process. Uh, we also looked at epigenetic age, which I can talk about in a little bit, which is you know how the DNA is packaged and how that looks older. But the, he didn't get older there either. So we looked at all these aging metrics. He actually looked a little bit younger. And that was surprising because we thought we'd see the opposite. It was one of the first big surprises of the study where we all were scratching our head when we were getting the data, like, oh, is this right? But mm. it turns out, if the more we thought about it and looked at the data, think about what he was doing up there. He was you know, getting a good night's sleep almost every night, as best as you can in space, when you actually can see cosmic rays shooting through his eyelids. As Scott Kelly talked about in his book that he wrote, that if you close your eyes, you can just see the streaks of light, basically as your retinal cells are being bombarded with radiation, which is kind of hard to sleep through probably for the very first time you're seeing that. But that notwithstanding, the radiation, your body eventually does to some degree adapt. You know, his telomeres got longer. He was getting a good night's sleep every night, getting a good meal, working out every morning, and there was no drinking. So, if all of us live that relatively healthy of a life, we probably would have some, uh, you know, rejuvenation effects as well. We think it was, it was a part of it. So then, <laughs> is he going to publish the astronaut diet, the lifestyle advice book? <laughs> He's published a photo book and a and a bio and a biography. He could do that next, actually. So we solicited questions from our uh, fan base, and it's primarily focused on this the twin study. But this field is so fascinating. Uh, I hope there's some spillage when we get there. So Matt, you have all the questions, right? I, I haven't seen any of them. I don't think I do. I, I've got them right here. The first one I was going to ask was actually about the telomeres, and Chris answered it before we even got to it. So thank you, Chris. Let's hear it anyway. That question was uh, is from JF1011 on Instagram. Who knows what that binary is? And it says, hello, I'm wondering if there has been any research into possible effects of long-term zero-G exposure on the telomeres in our chromosomes. I'm curious if living in space would alter the rate at which telomeres degrade and become shorter. Do we have any idea if long-term zero-G exposure would speed up or slow down this natural process? In short, could living in space long-term change how we age physically. And just to be clear, the telomeres is, is an indicator on Earth for how old you are because they're shorter in older people than younger people in your genetic profile. Is that a fair characterization? That's right. And so okay. basically they are a marker of how long your cells have been around and dividing. And you know they do shrink as we age. Uh, we also physically shrink as we age. Really, old people are shorter than they were when they were younger. You know, eventually gravity takes its toll on the body, and telomeres at a cellular level inside your body are, are no different. They get shorter, and you know we we thought it would accelerate in space. It turns out that actually. From everything we know, so Scott Kelly is the longest U.S. mission. It's the fourth longest in human history because uh, the the Russians have got us beat a little bit on that. But from the data we have, it looks like it's actually the lifestyle in space with the radiation notwithstanding. It looks like telomeres fare better. However, it goes back to normal when you get back to Earth. So this doesn't seem to be like a permanent shift. It seems to be a mixture. What we think it is a mixture of the environment and the lifestyle in space, which is. Ironically, pretty healthy. At least it's regulated so well that you know it's not so bad. It could be a, a new kind of uh, Earth-based diet and say, "Live like you're in space. You'll be you'll be younger in some ways." Uh, but the radiation may, to some degree, create some of these breaks. And uh, some of the other work we talk about in our papers that it looks like it could even just accelerate the killing of weaker cells. Is another another factor that might be happening. So we did sorted cell populations to see which cells are having longer telomeres. And some of the T cells get it more than the, some of the B cells, and other the whole blood samples uh, have it less so. So it seems to be 
Like most things in biology, it's cell-specific or time-specific. Just to be clear, there are two variables here. One of them is zero-G, and another is the fact that you are exposed to cosmic rays from space. So in principle, if you know the difference between one or the other, it wouldn't be simply zero-G that extends your telomeres. It would be your exposure to that level of radiation. And if that's the case, we can create radiation rooms and stick you in it and simulate what, what Scott went through in space. Yeah, absolutely. So we can test this. There's two examples of this where we see it. Interestingly, even Plasmodium falciparum, you know, which is a parasite, if you irradiate them on Earth, you can see they sometimes get longer telomeres. Same with uh, little worms called C. elegans. And interestingly, you think about like there's radiotherapy, we think of killing cancers, but there's a new clinical trial that's actually at Weill Cornell that's actually doing very subtle irradiation to prime T cells to activate them in a way that they're kind of they're senescent or they're quiet before. So, you know, radiation is if you don't completely obliterate someone with radiation, some of the discussion is what if you have just enough of it so you actually activate the cells or get rid of the weaker cells? That effect we can see is part of it as well. See, this this feels like one of these things that you don't really want that information to escape the lab yet because people are going to be selling. <laughs> Just stand in front of your microwave for three minutes a day and you'll get younger. You know, just, just rub a balloon on your shirt and then hold it against your head and you'll live five years younger. So, Matt, we have time for one more before we got to take a quick break. Awesome. Well, I love this. Que- this, this I love it when a question comes from someone's kids. This is from the eight year old son, Mason, of Patreon uh, patron Brian Simmer. I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. It says, does zero gravity make it harder for the body to digest food or go to the bathroom? Because everything's just floating around in your belly and gravity isn't helping. We actually have to take a break. See what I did there? I teased to the next segment. See, (laughs) I'm learning how to do that, see? So we're going to find out when we return what effect zero G has on the food in your stomach and whether it aids or disrupts your digestion. We'll start talking to you. Sleep, grocery shopping, themselves, just a few things working moms seldom have time for. And during tax season, you can add taxes to their list. So for all you working moms, make the easy switch to H&R Block and have an expert make easy work of your taxes. H&R Block guarantees your taxes are 100% accurate and your max refund or your money back. Plus, with their no surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even have an H&R Block tax pro do your taxes in a block office or online from the comfort of your own home. Can your current tax guy promise all that? When you're buried under life's to-dos, let the experts at H&R Block stay on top of your taxes with a return that's right on the money and your biggest refund possible. Because tax season after tax season, it's better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Descriptions of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Bring everyone together for a great time with the Nintendo Switch system. Get the whole family in on the fun with exciting games that everyone can enjoy, like Super Mario Bros. Wonder, Animal Crossing, New Horizons, and more. Nintendo Switch has three different play modes all in one system. Play in TV mode, tabletop mode, or handheld mode when you're on the go. 
Visit nintendo.com slash US slash Switch to learn more. Games rated E for everyone. We're back. StarTalk Cosmic Queries. Computational genetics, the twin study that NASA did with two astronauts, one put in space, one stayed here on Earth. Doctor, Chris Mason, thanks for being on Star Talk for doing this. We left off. <laughs> we last learned. Yes, we, we uh, were a, about to hear from Chris about the effects on the digestive system uh, of zero gravity, answering a question from Patreon, patron Brian Simmer's eight-year-old son, Mason. So what do you have? Well, it is different. Yeah, the eating in space and digesting in space and going to the bathroom in space are all you know a little bit different up there, and you know there is some indigestion that happens with astronauts, but in general they're able to keep food down once they get used to the the zero g space. You, you do have a sphincter that prevents food from coming back up, and unless something goes wrong, so it's the food stays down. But we did look at the microbiome in the gut as part of the study, and it's with another researcher called uh, Fred Turek, uh, who actually we looked to see well what species in the gut changed, and did they actually go in a good direction or a bad direction. We we saw from the twin study that you know some of the these kind of organisms are called firmicutes and bacteroides are these two big kinds of bugs in your gut. They they went in a direction that is not as is not as you'd like. It indicates sort of gut dysbiosis or uh, problems. And uh, Scott Kelly, you know, he had a little bit of complaints, but mostly he was fine. But if you look at the molecular level and what's in the gut, we could see some things that looked uh, like dysbiosis, but it went right back to normal as soon as he came back to Earth. Was some good news, uh, but going to the bathroom, I didn't get any specific complaints that he uh, had any problems with, say, or at least in the medical logs, we didn't see uh, significant dangers of diarrhea or anything awful. But just going to the bathroom is hard in space. You have to, you know, there's a vacuum pump. There's actually a clamp that kind of keeps you positioned on the toilet. You have to set out the vacuum and the cleaning supplies. It's a you know it's a long process, and so we we did see in some cases, you know, dehydration show up, and not just Scott but other astronauts because it's not pleasant to go to the bathroom. So they'll try to actually they won't drink as much water, so they don't have to go to the bathroom as much. So some of it is just behavioral avoidance of the bathroom, which which creates a little bit of uh, maybe indigestion or, or uh, digestive problems. But but the 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 species change in his gut as well, which we can see that from the, from the stool. So we take uh, stool samples and we can sequence the bugs. Wait, wait, Chris, did I just learn a new word from you? Dysbiotic was, was uh, that a yes. word? But, uh, dysbi- that just means you, you have a problem. <laughs> yes, right. It's right, right, right. a fancy way of saying uh, something feels weird here. Yeah, that's right. a, a tummy ache. I have a tummy ache. That's you are right, dysbiotic. Right. <laughs> Well, it's like if you add itis to any word on your body, it just means it's inflamed. Yeah, so it's uh, oh yeah, wow, it's, okay, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. So you could just throw that around. I, I've got eyeball itis. You could say. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get another question. This is a, another uh, Patreon patron, uh, John Baker, asks: What, if any, caveats are there in purposefully genetically engineering people to be able to withstand cosmic radiation that exists outside our sun's heliosphere? Um, if this is correct, pertaining to the furthest boundary of our sun's influence. If not, what does our sun's influence protect us from while within our solar system? That, that sounds like it's a half Chris and half Neil question there. <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to lead off there and say that sun doesn't really protect you from anything. Uh, you know, when you cross the, 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 the edge of the sun's influence in the solar system, you're in intergalactic, you're interstellar space at that point. And there's a magnetic field there. There's some uh, cosmic rays, but those cosmic rays can come straight on through down to Earth. So, so you, when you're in the sun's influence, you are subjected to solar particles that themselves have issues. There's solar flares, this sort of thing. So, uh, no, in the solar heliosphere, you are worse than you'll ever be outside of it. <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, maybe maybe Chris's next mission is to send people beyond Pluto or beyond the heliosphere and then have them come back 100 years later and see if anything happened to them. All right. See if there's been any aging effects. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's right. well, I would love to do that study. If uh, Actually, we did put on the lab's website a 500-year research plan of what I think should be happening. And 
a lot of the students who first looked during the lab said, wait a minute, are you going to be around for the 500 years? I said, no, no, of course not. But I want to, it's a very human capability to plan for it beyond your own lifespan. So I think everyone should have at least one plan that goes longer than their own life. Common manifestation is just to have kids to do that. But the, you know, I think I would love to do that study, even, even if and even especially if I'm not around to see the end of it. It's actually a great uh, trait of humanity. But, uh, but we did see, so actually Neil's right, the space station is protected by the magnetosphere, which actually gives you the most protection from the sun's uh, radiation, but the cosmic rays come in you know, from all over the place, and so they'll, they'll bombard you. We, we basically have, you know, the study was done on the space station, so I think what's really going to be interesting is you know, what happens when we get to the moon uh, or get out to Mars, uh, where it's much, you get much more of the, the radiation from the sun, and uh, you have much less protection from the magnetosphere. Mars does not have a magnetosphere, so even if you get there, the best protection you'll have is that the planet will be under you uh, for the, at least that half of the radiation, uh, but but it will be more radiation. And then if you engineered some cells to survive, I think um, you know, we've published some papers about this and talk about it a bit. This is a big ethical question as to how and when you engineer and, and modify the human genome, especially for astronauts being sent far away. But I'd make the argument that it might be we might be ethically bound to do so because if you have a genetic technology that can keep people safe, and you don't use it for someone being sent to a place that has more radiation. Is that unethical if you're putting them in a, if you're not protecting them when you could? Now, that presumes that the genetic technology is perfectly safe, integrates with no problems, and is maybe even removable. Uh, none of those things which we can guarantee today. But uh, as, a, as a conceptual idea, those are, I think, things you could discuss, you know, and debate. When you said removable, you mean reversible. Yeah, yeah, reversal or, or even removal because you can integrate chunks into the human genome. Uh, you can take old viruses and basically implant them into the genome. And in theory, you can take them back out with CRISPR type methods. So you can cut them back out if you want to. Uh, mm-hmm. Or you can even have mm-hmm. artificial chromosomes. Like, you know, mo- most humans have 46 chromosomes. What if you added a little bit, one extra? Uh, we, we've done this in cell culture and labs. So you can have little, little mobile elements that you can take in and out. And so the technology to do this is, is eerily easily, uh, easily done in a lot of labs. So I just have a quick historical story here that the history of thinking that we should modify ourselves biologically in order to withstand forces and stresses under uh, uh, situations that the rest of us don't experience generally lends itself better to engineering solutions than biological solutions. Like, for example, in the early days of fighter pilots, they do tight rolls and the blood would leave their head and go to their feet and they'd pass out. They say, well, maybe we can give them some medicine or a pill that will, where the red blood cells will retain more oxygen so they don't pass out. And they just invented pressure suits to prevent the blood from going into the legs. It was that simple. They went up and there's no biological change in the person at all. Yeah. yeah. Or you want to maintain the homeostasis uh, in the body rather than trying to you know, recreate a different homeostasis. Yeah. A yeah, different, which, uh, yeah, yeah. Right, so, Matt, what else? All right. So, this is, uh, I think, connected. So, Andy Bracken on Facebook asks Has spending significant times in space altered the genetic makeup at all? Greetings from Columbus, Ohio. So what we've seen is the we looked at is there any DNA damage that happened because he was in space? Because you know there, we talked a bit about how radiation at very low levels can sometimes be helpful for you know priming cells, but generally it's bad. And we did see more breaks of the DNA, these sort of double strand breaks or you know fractures in the chromosomes. We could see that even after Scott got back to Earth. So. The preliminary evidence is that it, you know, it's not like it went up a hundred times. So suddenly he was, you know, as if he was someone who had been completely irradiated, like a cancer patient. But it did go up. You know, you'd want it to stay flat or maybe go down. But we we did see he had more mutations, uh, basically that you could see were broken DNA. And also we're looking at, you know, what, what there's another aspect of aging that's uh, actually called clonal hematopoiesis, which is a word. It just means a clone in your blood. The hemato is the heme in your blood. And poesis means to create something. So actually, we could see in his blood different clones were changing over time, and we don't we don't yet know if it's good or bad for the long term health. But we can see these differences um, in the astronauts' uh, genetic makeup, and so uh, these are things we're keeping an eye on, but we're not too worried about them yet. All right, all right, man. What else you got? I like this question because it's sort of the opposite. Shant uh, Shant uh, Esmeralda on Instagram. I hope I've got that correct. Says, "What would be the long term effects of living on a planet?" With more gravitational force than Earth, will our bones and muscles get stronger? Almost certainly. From everything we've seen from the plasticity of the human body, 
it you know we know it loses a lot of the bone mass uh, very quickly in space. You can actually see in the urine the calcium coming out of the body from astronauts in space. So it's basically Scott even described it as if you don't if you miss a morning when you work out, and other astronauts have said this too, is that you feel like your bones are dissolving while you're in the lack of gravity. So and if you went to more gravity. The, the body is extraordinarily adaptive. It will really try and reach that homeostasis and try and get back to its normal state very quickly. And so you would expect stronger muscles, higher bone density. You could see, you know, we, we know certain mutations in genes like LRP5 will give you this greater bone density uh, in advance. And so I, I think you'd almost certainly see that uh, is if you got, say, went to, you know, something with twice or three times the gravity. And it would be, and in theory, the body could do it. I don't know if it could do 10 times the gravity, but probably two or three times it would adapt. In the catalogs of exoplanets, uh, we categorize the planets that are maybe twice the size of Earth or three times as still Earth-like, and we call them super-Earths. And if you calculate what their gravity would be, it would be maybe 50% more, something like that, within a, within a factor of two. What I would wonder is, yeah, you'd be sluggish at first, and then your muscles get strong, but will your heart keep up with it? Your heart is now pumping against it. Is your heart a sufficiently... Uh, it's not the kind of muscle where let's just do it and it gets bigger and stronger, is it or not? You're right. It, I mean, it, it, parts of it can adapt. Uh, you know, it, it can get stronger as a function. Like you can just see this in athletes uh, who work out, but but it's not like a bicep. So you can't suddenly go to two times the heart size just because you've been there for you know a couple of weeks, <laughs> which is might be what it might be what you'd need. So it, the cardiovascular stress is something. You can just see that for people who go live on the top of a mountain and start hiking around, it's low blood oxygen. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's already hard enough. So I think, you know, you'd ideally want to be grow up there. You'd want to land there as an embryo and start start from that way. It'd be tough if you went as a grown person. And then come back to Earth and rip telephone books in half and <laughs> <laughs> generally be all kind of beast. Well, there there is a question that's connected to that uh, in terms of growing up. Again, it's one that's from both a Patreon patron and. And the child, uh, aside, this is Ryan McNeil on Patreon, and his son Angus says, aside from bone density, muscle atrophy, and uh, psychological issues, would there be any neurological or physiological effects from long-term space travel? My son Angus is curious as to how children may develop differently outside of Earth's atmosphere, and if their growth process would help them adapt to the environment better than adults. How would a human who'd spent their growth cycles in zero gravity live on a planet as an adult? It would probably be very difficult if you if you just can't. So there, there's never been a human uh, baby born in space, as most people probably know. There's officially never been sex in space, at least between humans. They have taken. There's been pregnant mice that have been sent into space. There's been some mouse mating that's been tried in space, where you know when the mice get in zero g, they just kind of flop around. It's very kind of there's a there's a whole mouse cage on the ISS, so that's kind of funny to watch. You know, for the on the record, there's no sex in space, and there's been uh, pregnant mice that have given birth, though. So we know birth is possible in space. Uh, If you could grow up in zero g and then try and go to a planet, assuming that all works. It would probably be very, very difficult to maybe even survive, and so I think you would get there. You would be you know, really pummeled and crushed by the gravity. You might not survive. So you could argue that if you do let people grow up in zero g, have you given them a, a prison in space where they're never allowed to go to a surface, or how could, or maybe mechanically you could supplement them somehow when they get there as an idea, like Neil was just saying, some way to save them, but. It is, uh, you know, it's a it's a challenging idea that you know. Ideally, you'd have the most galactic freedom. The you're you should be able to live anywhere you want in theory uh, as an organism. But right now, we're not there. I, that's the ideal I'd strive for. But I think we're not there yet. Yeah, of course, there was the film, The Space Between Us, which explored the first person ever born on another planet, and it was a boy born on Mars, and so he's native Martian, basically. And then when he comes to Earth. Uh, you know, because he can jump high and do things on Mars, and he comes to Earth, and he can't. And so you, part of it explores, and then there's a love interest in this. You got to have that. But, <laughs> but for those who haven't seen it, just explores this idea of what happens when you cross gravitational boundaries, and how do you adapt physiologically to well, it. There is a sort of a connected question as well from Matt Dean on Facebook, who asks: Biologically speaking, would it be more difficult to procreate in space? Would fertilization <laughs> rates be similar? Asking uh, for a friend. Asking for a friend. Asking for a friend. So, 
We have, uh, so there's not been any good studies on sperm count yet, say for astronauts uh, over the years. There is a longitude and health assessment study that NASA does and also the Russian space program has. But there, we don't yet know the big impact on, you know, what does it do to sperm count or, or even just ha- having fertilization work in space. Uh, the, only, the only ones that have gotten it to work for are fruit flies. So we know it can be done for flies, which is great, but humans, you know, we don't, we don't know. H- humans are notoriously creative with their reproductive practices, so I'm sure they'd figure it out in space. But they, uh, but it hasn't been tried yet. And the the embryogenesis, you know, the only example we have is that we know a pregnant mouse gave birth in space. So the the remaining parts of how you go from one cell to the trillions of cells, you know, that process is very delicate and complicated. But it seems to be at least in a, in some mouse samples, robust enough to finish the job. And so. The big question is, can you start completely in zero G and go all the way through, you know, nine months of embryogenesis? And that's a big unknown. It's it's possible it would. The right, but Chris, thing. it's an unknown. But do you really classify it as a big unknown? Because the smaller you are, I mean, the smaller anything is, the, the less susceptible it is to the forces of gravity. And then it becomes just what's going on in the fluid you're contained in. It becomes a fluid thing, fluid dynamics, rather than gravity. So you're not completely ignorant about what what a, a sperm fertilizing a cell, moving through a tube. Yeah, you know, fluid. gravity is kind of irrelevant there, right? That, that's right. So I think the reason that the mouse experiment worked it gives us. I think I'm, it's probably going to be okay. I, I would. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a big risk, though. You'd have to, I don't know how you get a, you know, a review board to say yes. This sounds like an ethical experiment to start sending embryos in space. But but at some point yeah. it might happen if we really become an interplanetary species and start going back and forth. Uh, and if the trips are six to nine months, it, it might happen. I would also add that if you are going to be born in zero g, it would be ethical to train the person in a 1G environment. We keep talking about 0G like that's the inevitable condition in space, but nothing's going to stop the future. We have rotating space stations, and there's 1G, and then this conversation is moot. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, Matt, Yeah. one more question before we break. Well, I I like this one because it's it's more about the the surroundings to the astronauts. Christine Tolman on Patreon says, this is a very simple question. Uh, I'm not sure if it is. Uh, what kind of things? <laughs> what kind of things to support, uh, do support personnel consider when getting people missions ready? What do they consider to optimize the health of the astronauts? Ooh, good one. Well, again, I, I tease that. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and find out what the pre-launch prep, the biological pre-launch prep, is going to be for these astronauts when we return. <laughs> You know what shouldn't feel like rocket science? Planning a vacation your whole crew will love. With Carnival Cruise Line, it's all up to you. You can kick back or dive right into the fun. Paddleboard in the crystal clear waters of one of Carnival's exclusive destinations, Half Moon Key in the Bahamas. Take an ATV ride through the jungle or just relax on white sandy Caribbean beaches. The fun continues on ship. From a ride on Bolt roller coaster to a moment of pure bliss at the Cloud Nine Spa. Kick off the evening with a craft cocktail at any of Carnival's dazzling bars and lounges and take your pick of restaurants from surf and turf to family style Italian. Then settle in for an evening of live entertainment. Whatever your vibe is, you'll come home with plenty of stories to tell. So pack those bags, be sure to leave room for a few unforgettable memories because no one does fun like Carnival. Book your dream vacation at Carnival.com. Ships Registry, The Bahamas and Panama. eBay Motors is here for the ride. You saw the potential and through some elbow grease, fresh installs and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices... 
you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, we'd like to give a Patreon shout-out to the following Patreon patrons. Michael Gessner and Riam Samarai. Thank you so much, guys, for your support. Without you, there's no way we could do this show. And for anyone listening who would like their own Patreon shout-out, please go to patreon.com slash startalkradio and support us. We're back. We're talking about genetics and space and genetic modification and what all that requires. And it's a cosmic queries. And, and Matt, we just had an emergency question just land in our lap we did. moments feels, ago. We, we got to go there. This feels strangely urgent. <laughs> strangely urgent. So give, it, it, give it, it to us. And it references a TV show on now made by the great Amanda Yanucci. It's from Itai uh, Mendelovich on Facebook asks, on the show Avenue 5, the engineers who built the ship used the sewage system as a shield, more like armor, around the ship, claiming that poo is the best and easiest radiation absorbent. Is this claim true? And then uh, Itai says, later there is an external rupture resulting in a poop ring around the ship and the captain is sent on an EVA to patch the system. (laughs) So so is is this plausible and is this scientifically accurate to this comedy sci-fi show? I'm going to say mostly yes, actually. If you think, uh, because you need some kind of radiation shielding. And what if you had the sewage surrounding you, assuming it's contained so it doesn't smell, you would actually have a liquid and the water would absorb some of the radiation that's coming from out in space. And then if it's just water, that's fine. But if it's water with all the bacteria and sort of small viruses and sort of organic matter, detritus that's in there, that gives you basically a biological plus you know, small water-based shield around a ship that could give you a little bit of extra protection. And then you got to put the waste somewhere anyway while you're recycling it. So you might as well put it on the outside. It's actually not that crazy of an idea. It sounds weird to be continually surrounded by circulating stool, but if you're being protected from radiation, I think people would be okay with it. See, I got I to gotta pipe in here. I think most of the radiation is just absorbed by the water. And so if you had just a water shield that you would use for your food and digestion and all the rest of that, it accomplishes the same thing. And that's a lot of poop. Mm. To have to complete <laughs> in case. I mean, how much pooping are they doing in space? Right? You, you, you got to go up there preloaded with poop. If what that's going you to be your shield. Once, you, well, once you've done your exercise bike, you've done your scientific experiments of the day, whatever. Uh, People get n- nervous. You, you said in space yourself that it's out. a real mission to get onto the toilet. You might as well make the most of it when you're out there. That's right. That's right. That's right. It would be fun if, you, if they color coded the poop and you get to see whose poop was shielding you from what cosmic ray. That'd be. Uh, uh, who had the beetroot salad? <laughs> you can see. But, Someone had carrots. Who had carrots? Yeah. Wait, and who, and who didn't digest these corn kernels? Right? <laughs> everyone. Everyone didn't digest them. <laughs> but, but Chris, it's interesting that you added the concept of a biological shield. Yes, whatever the water's doing, certainly if a, if a, if a dangerous ray hits a virus or anything else, um, that's a little extra protection. But what you don't want is for it to then mutate the microbes and then they come back at you. Mm-hmm. Through the vents, and then that's a, like an alien rewritten, right there. Hopefully, they wouldn't. They could be. I mean, it depends how you clean them at the end. But the, so some bacteria that have been seen in space on the walls of the space station uh, have changed their virulence profile. How, how much they resist antibiotics that's been published. So yeah, you wouldn't want to you know make that worse at all, or, or in some way uh, you know be attacked by aliens that you made around you, especially if they came from your own stool. Yeah. 
some, some poetic justice there. Um, so before the break, we teased this question from Christine Tolman about what the support personnel have to consider to get astronauts ready for the health concerns that they might face. Yeah, one of the biggest challenges is just getting uh, you know the training, learning uh, Russian as well as knowing English. For example, you have to become you know not just a, a scientist or a pilot, but really an engineer in case anything gets broken. So. The training, a lot of it's mental, and also be prepared for the isolation. And physiologically, a lot of it's just staying in really good shape, uh, being you know having make sure your nutrition is preserved. They do go into a quarantine before they go up. And so, for example, in Kazakhstan, most of the astronauts have a, a point where they have to say goodbye to their families or friends, and they can you know call them or video chat, but they can't physically see them just to keep it you know, so they don't pick up a virus before they go up. There is a cute little tradition where they actually uh, urinate uh, on one of the vans that takes them to the launch pad in Kazakhstan. So that's um, an old uh, tradition started by uh, Yuri Gargan, who, who did you know, one of the first first man in space. So, I mean, you got to let it out before you go up. So that's a, a small but important step. Although you're, you're costing yourself some radiation shielding from what I now have. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> some of that's now being wasted. So just to be clear, it's not that they have to pee on the van. It's that... Yuri Gagarin just had to pee, and if you're out there, if you're out there in the open, what's a guy going to do? You're going to pee on the wheel of the car, right? That's what that's what you do. If if there's not a tree around, fascinating that that is so, <laughs> it became a tradition. That's very cool. Um, well, there there is a connected question. Uh, everything you were talking about strangely pertinent in our current situation, and there is a question from again, uh, I don't know how uh, Trotsky Wesiche. Wait, uh, I don't know uh, Trotsky something on Instagram has asked. What ideas are we working on to help prevent or at least minimize the effect of isolation on future astronauts and space explorers alike? Yeah, that, that's actually isolation is one of the the five key hazards uh, for spaceflight for human spaceflight identified by NASA. You know, the other ones are the radiation, which we talked about. There's just the distance from Earth. You're you're far away, so if something goes wrong. There's nothing you can do. Uh, there's no gravity, and it's a hostile environment. There, you know, things go wrong often up there. But the isolation is one of the listed hazards, and just being that far from friends, that far from your family, uh, with only six people. I don't know if you've ever been on a road trip and you're with the same like four people for, say, four to five days. Some people go bananas uh, just with that context. And so if you have you know, six to nine months on your way to Mars with only three other people or five other people to talk to and look at, you, know, you have to mentally prepare for that. A lot of that's the, the training. They, they select the astronauts very carefully and they train them for that. Uh, but then also, there's there's entertainment up there now. So you know, I, you can get emails from astronauts now. I've gotten many where people saying, "Hey, they're checking on a mission program, or we're running experiments up there." They're very. You can email with them, and you can video chat, and they can chat with their families. And if you think about it, you know, I think isolation was terrifying 10, 15, 20 years ago. But you can get everything that's on you know Netflix uh, up in space. And so you know, it's it, I think for long term space flight. It might not be that bad. Um, what? What? How? Know. How good is their Wi-Fi up there? What, what speed is their internet connection <laughs> these days? It, it, it's close to broadband, but it's 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 not. You know, they're not going to do a high def uh, streaming quite yet uh, for the space station. <laughs> but uh, you know, I always remembered. I mean, I saw early episodes of Twilight Zone because I'm that old, and uh, many of the episodes explored the psychological effects of isolation. And I'm thinking to myself. What? Then I thought, wow, that must be really serious. And then I thought to myself, I know people who don't ever want to talk to anyone ever. <laughs> and there are times in my life where I, want, I feel the same. Just give me a book, give me a Netflix account, and I'm good, stay the hell out of my life. And so I, I thought maybe the concern about isolation was over overplayed well, and over well, we're, we're all kind of in this experiment right now so that the entire planet <laughs> is undergoing this mass experiment there's a lot of both helpful and little bit smug articles that i've read by various astronauts including the kellys yes yeah, so uh, um, yep, yep. about like uh here's how we do it so yep. huh? <laughs> i thought scott's was good it was yeah scott's like scott's was great that was a but there's uh there's there's that sort of like we've gone through this this is how to do it but there's also that slight like and we're astronauts. <laughs> and you're not. Maybe, and, maybe that's just me reading it. Maybe that's just me putting my own prejudices onto it. Because because uh, I'm very aware that astronaut was my dream job when I was a kid before I realized how much work and ability was necessary to reach that point. 
Matt, Matt, were you the inadequate stuff? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> instead, of the, instead of the right stuff, instead yeah. of the, the, the right stuff, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the wrong almost, stuff, the yeah, almost the, uh, stuff, yeah. The, the stuff that really didn't apply itself hard enough. <laughs> uh, but also this notion of, of video chatting, um, I've had the privilege of being on space station astronauts email chain. Um, so that was requested by NASA. NASA contacts me, would I agree? So that when they're passing overhead, we exchange some emails. Part of the, the, the normalcy, uh, the normality um, efforts, you know, to, they have comfort food, this sort of thing. But here's my, here's my point. Uh, as you go farther away from Earth, the idea of having a video chat with any repartee basically goes out the window because of the light travel time for the signal. So anything beyond lunar orbit, you go to Mars, it's a 20-minute delay. Hey, how you doing? And that's 20 minutes there and 20 minutes back. And 40 minutes later, I'm fine. How are you? <laughs> yeah. So that's quite remarkable. So almost in a way, the more advanced the technology and the further away we can travel, the closer we get to how people would communicate hundreds of years ago. Or even a hundred years ago, it's oh. more. It's more letter writing. It's sending oh. long missives to each other. Very perceptive. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Which is true. We, that was actually kind of romantic back then, because you got so excited when you get a full treatise of someone's thoughts and dreams and hopes. And maybe we'll come back to a more romantic species when it's longer, uh, longer messages. Right. There's there's no just texting you up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Wait, you up? Have- <laughs> <laughs> like. <laughs> and then you start having to get into like, well, what does up really mean when you're in an orbit? <laughs> right, very good, very good. So, Matt, you got more questions on I this? I do. Uh, well, um, I, I do like this question. Again, it's a it, it's a chance to feel marginally superior to astronauts. Good. And Andrew <laughs> good. Mathis on Facebook asks: Say you were to stay on the ISS forever. Would you eventually turn into a floating, flappy sack of organs? <laughs> Could you survive that way if you were to stay there forever, just a floating blob? Uh, so, 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 so it means you're there, but you don't go on any of the exercise machines. Yeah, that's what yeah. So you you, you, do, just, you don't do, uh, or even, even if you do go on exercise G. machines, like there, there has to be a limit. Because, like, my understanding is, no matter how much they work with resistance-based machines, there is an element of muscle deterioration, whatever happens, right? That, yeah, that's right. You'll see some atrophy that is really unavoidable. It's, you know, as you can just tell when they get back to Earth, it takes days or even weeks to acclimate back. And Scott even said it, he felt like it took him six to, he said he didn't feel really normal until seven or eight months later where he felt, you know, back to normal. Uh, and that's with it, sort of the daily workouts. So, yeah, if, if you did none of those things, uh, you know that that experiment's not been tried for obvious reasons because you could then you, you it'd be really hard to go anywhere. It'd be like the zero g children where you wouldn't be able to go to Earth. But I I think most of your structure would stay in place. Like the the actual I don't think the organs would suddenly float away out of your body or or you changed into a blob. But but you would really um, if anything it would depend a bit on your nutrition because you already uh, you know could lose lose weight. You might become just more bony and skinny. But if you eat a lot and don't move at all, you could become blobby and, and fat as well. We, we don't have any data on this, but it, I don't think you would like lose the structure of your organs and how they're related to each other, but you would become well, more blob-like. Well, there's a co- connected question, I think, from uh, Victoria Del Piano on Patreon who says, do we know how the cerebellum and middle ear adapt to low or zero gravity as they are organs that develop because and by gravity? Has the twin that was in space been studied for this? And then greetings from Chile. Great question. So the, uh, we've clearly evolved on this planet under this gravity, and the ear is a great way to maintain you know, proprioception, which is the ability to sense your body in space, uh, and not just in space above space, but also on, here on Earth, uh, how you are relative to other objects. There, you know, actually, you can tell that there is an acclimation period. There's also, when astronauts first get into space, there's something called um, sort of a, the puffy face they get, where there's so much fluid that goes into their upper body. They have trouble orienting themselves, trouble moving around. But amazingly, the body adapts usually within a few days, and they can maneuver quite well. You've seen people definitely jump around in zero-G and look like they're having fun. Uh, Scott Kelly at one point had a bear suit on that he wandered around the space station with. So you, know, you, you can uh, they get pretty used to it. And some of this is because a lot of the fluids are contained, you know, within small miniature organs and structures in the body that keep them in place. And the body has an amazing ability to adapt. 
you know, it's one of those examples where you think the body would would do awful, but it it can adapt after a few days, actually. Well, I, re- I remember, uh, I know there are psychological effects. I remember Chris Hadfield saying one of the things he had to relearn how to do when he got back to Earth was to not just let go of things. Oh, right, right. Because uh, gravity, you, know, you forget that things won't just uh, yeah, quietly you, drift nearby. Yeah, you yeah. forget that a coffee cup, that if you release that, you now have <laughs> coffee on fall. the floor. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard thing to um, you know to acclimate to, but they generally you know really enjoy it. And I think it's you know there's also pressure in the eyes that is also part of it. Like you think of the structures in the in the the sinuses and the head that change. The that, eyes experience a lot of pressure as well, which is that was a question we actually got. Yes, from Aaron Esty on Facebook says, "I know the lack of gravity changes the shape of the eye. Is the effect permanent?" After the astronauts return to Earth, so for a lot of astronauts, it, it looks like it is, and so a lot of them end up wearing glasses when they come back to Earth. They basically the, the pressure is on the eye; so much fluid goes up into the into the cranium, into your head, it pushes against the eye in ways that are not normally done. And this, and as well as other just stresses of spaceflight, are thought to lead to something called SANS, is spaceflight associated neuroocular syndrome, which just means uh, eyeball-itis. You know, my eyes hurt and something went wrong. <laughs> And so it's a fancy way of saying your, it looks like your retina has problems or other folds. And, and so the, it, most of it looks like it's permanent. What's interesting is so far it seems to affect men slightly more than women. And so there's some discussion that maybe the first astronauts to Mars might be a mostly female crew because their eyes don't seem to be as affected. Um, but the statistics are very low on this. We only have about 580 human beings that have ever left Earth and gone above 100 kilometers. So you know we, we can't say definitively this, uh, these statistics, but it seems like... You know, there are differences between people where some people don't get affected, but most of them do. Um, Plus, if we set, if the next ship is rotating and we simulate 1G, yeah. again, then, all of this yeah, is moot. Is moot, moot. Right. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Then you don't have eyeball-itis. <laughs> is there any difference in how you would, this is a question from me rather than from any of our listeners, but uh, is would the body be able to tell the difference between a rotating spacecraft simulating 1G and being on Earth? Yes, you would, but in a very in a very particular way. Uh, at the point, if you have one, if you rotate it at the right speed, given the right radius, and you have one G at the floor that you're walking on, sure. But since you're standing up, your head is at a different radius from the point of rotation than your feet are. So your head would feel a slightly different G than your feet would be. So the and larger that, the spacecraft, the, the less this effect would be, right? The larger the, the, the rotation The less that effect would be. Correct, correct. Otherwise, your body would have no physical way to know the difference. Yes, yeah, so um, we just need a spacecraft the size of a planet. And that, in fact, we should just turn Earth into a, planet, <laughs> a spacecraft. There was a movie about this, the Wandering Earth. Like you know, they made the Earth move to. I don't know if anyone saw this movie, but they put a bunch of engines on the Earth and moved it to another solar system because ours had gone kaput. Cool. So it was an interesting. I gotta idea. see that. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Yeah, yeah. So if it's big enough, then the difference between your head and your feet is small. But until then, that's an unstudied problem, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, well, dude, we, we've actually run out of time. Ooh. But but Chris, now I know you're just right around the corner from us. Over yeah, there, Brooklyn yeah. in the house. That's right, that's uh, right. We'd love to get you back on and do more of this because you are on a biological frontier. And just talking about space is a tiny piece of this, as you know. Uh, we want to we want to do a whole show is just orbiting your research specialty, okay, right. and continuing that. If you if if you with your permission, that yeah, it'd be a pleasure to come back. There's there's lots of genes in the genome. There's lots of cells in the body. Everyone has a story, so be happy to talk about them. And some of them are being taken from one species, being put into another. Some for radiation, all kinds of things. Definitely, it'd be a pleasure. And then you also tell us what's going on behind the locked doors of your lab as well. That's tough. We'll have to sign sign a confidentiality agreement with all your listeners. And then, then you get it out. That's right. what, what creature will crawl out of from the door? So, Dr. Chris Mason, thank you for being on Star Talk. And Matt Kirshen, sometimes science or maybe science? Or it's almost, probably science. Almost, it's my very <laughs> kind of science. It's on its way. It's <laughs> is it half-baked science? Uh, it's man, Always we love you. Always. We, we'd love yeah. to like, get it as, as fully baked as half-baked. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, guys, for being on StarTalk Cosmic Queries. I'm Neil deGrasse Tyson, your personal astrophysicist, as always, bidding you to keep looking up.
In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.